Hello and uh, welcome to Iconocast, the science and culture podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hobrick. I'm with Greg Layden, who's my co-host. And today's featured guest is Marlene Zuck, who is the author of the book, Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. And I want to lead in with the reason that I was really interested in this book, and it involves the story of me and my brother. So I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but I do have a brother that's two years older than me, and he has a pre-med degree. And his career involves selling vitamins to chiropractors wholesale. And so he and I have some different ideas as far as how science works and what it does. And we have some discussions every once in a while that get perhaps a little bit more heated. You know, he's the kind of guy that uh, we never finished Game of Monopoly because generally a tornado will come in and destroy Atlantic City before it's all finished. One of the things that came up about um, 10 years ago, the time that you uh, read the book, is that he discovered the paleo diet. We were talking about it one day over breakfast because I wanted to have more cereal than he thought that I should. And uh, he started talking about how evolutionarily uh, humans evolved not eating cereals, but eating fruits, berries, and meats. And so a simple guideline on how people should form their diet is based on thinking about what Cro-Magnon man might have eaten in Europe because that's how our body is tuned and how our body digests and so forth. And that a lot of the products of agriculture, such as the different cereals are actually damaging to us. And that didn't quite seem right to me because my understanding of human evolution was a bit different, but he's the one with a science degree and I'm not. So it was really hard for me to persuade him differently. And so a tornado came in and, and ruined our breakfast. So I asked Greg about it and he said, well, I'm not quite qualified to talk about diet. And so I didn't really know who to go to. And then a few years later, um, I actually found your book. It came up as a suggestion on Amazon and I ordered it right away and I read it. And I said, hey, that's great. This is confirming what I thought. And um, as an aside, I think a lot of people tend to look for the science that confirms what we already think rather than really to investigate and see what the best science is. And I think I probably just as guilty as any lay person on science when it comes to that. But when I read your book, so many of the concepts that you were writing about, and especially when it came to such things as a paleo diet and exercise and so forth, really helped me get a better understanding of a better way to look at science and evolution. And so I'd been thinking about uh, when we started, since we started this podcast about 2015, about inviting you on you the show and finally said okay it's time to invite marlene so welcome to the show marlene well thanks i'm i'm glad to know you came across the book such a long time ago that's terrific and i'll tell you my story about the book is slightly different i am a, a biological a bioanthropologist okay so my work involved among other things you talk about rangham's uh cooking hypothesis in uh, in your book that comes from a paper that i'm co-author on with him and uh, I also wrote about the shift and fallback foods from leaves to to roots as part of the apium split. And we can talk later about how causal things work in speciation and how we need to be more sophisticated in that. But that's what I did. And I lived with the F.A. hunter-gatherers, F.A. pygmies, for a few years. So I have a good 
sense. I work, Herb DeVore was my advisor. So I had, I have a good sense of what, like, I the book comes out and it's a book like, well, I wish I had written that book. I should have written that book, you know, and lots of books we all think we should have, or we, we would like to have written like the latest best-selling novel or the origin of species or whatever. Um, and I, and I, I, I was um, reluctant to read your book because if you're a, an expert, and I, at the time, especially, I'd read every single thing ever written in English and half the stuff in French about anything about foragers, right? So as a, as a, you know, expert, you don't want to read something for the popular uh, pre uh, press because it's always annoying to do that. Or like we did an article in the New York Times about it. It's always annoying. But I read your book and it was really not annoying at all. It was great. And I found that, your well, that, that we are uh, too bad. We did not have you to do a cover blur because that would be so awesome. Like Greg, this, it's not, an, not right. annoying at all. Not annoying at all. Like, like that's, that's yeah. And that's, that's high praise because, it, because, you know, you know, I'm talking about you, 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 your book is about how to look at human evolution. How do you look at human beings in relation to human evolution with nuance and context? So, you know, this, you read a book, I, I read a book a while back around the time that your book came out, a book on malaria came out called the Malaria Capers, I think it was called. And the first chapter of the book was the history of humans. So a person who knows nothing about his human evolution and nothing about the history of humans, but a lot about malaria, writes is feels obligated to write this chapter, which will be all made out of things that are wrong. Right? It has a basic idea, but the, the, the common widespread view of human evolution held by non-experts is not accurate and it's mainly not accurate not because it's wrong but because it's not subtle and nuanced and complicated enough to describe what really happens and so the world is full of that kind of thing and i just think that your book was a great example of just not doing that of having a, a, a nuanced context context-based view um that asks questions well and so on so that's why i i'm i wish we were doing the podcast back then i think we could have would have been great as an because when, when an author writes a book that's when they'll actually come on podcasts even if they've never heard of them before right <laughs> that's how you get good authors so um so that's my perspective on this and uh so i would like to start off by asking you to situate us in you know the, the whole idea of looking at human evolution looking at modern humans in relation to human evolution is that there's a past there's a human past so there's a, there's maybe uh, early humans. There's a Paleolithic. There's ancestors. Can you give us your view on what is the time frame and maybe the species frame of who we should be looking at? I mean, we we descend from an amoeba-like single-celled organism, and that's not that useful. We also descended from our parents, and that's also not that useful. So somewhere between the amoeba and the parents. Where, what's the useful framework for thinking about humans and how would you describe that with your current thinking? Because you may have even changed your mind since the book because there's been some findings and stuff. So, so first of all, I, I guess I, I'm coming at this from not being... So I actually don't think about Paleo Fantasy as being a book about humans, really. I mean, I, I recognize that, you know, people take it as that and... I'm interested more broadly in the, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I work mostly on insects, um, but I feel like that does qualify me to talk about evolution, you know, in general. And I was, I'm just always fascinated by the way people talk about both evolution and also about behavior, animal behavior 
and the way it affects their lives. And you hear this coming up all the time. Um, I, I, and I feel like with the book, I uh, it's interesting, Mike, what you said, because um, so I used to have, when I was doing a lot of interviews when the book first came out, I would literally start with a disclaimer that said, like, I am not a dietitian. I'm not trained in, you know, human nutrition. And also, I just don't really care what you eat. Like, okay. I don't want to give advice about what people should eat. I'm not interested. You know, I used to really put... I had several interviewers like, oh, well, let's just start this by talking about what you had for breakfast. And it's like, I don't want to talk to you about what I had for breakfast. It doesn't matter. This is not what the book is about. Here, let me, you know, reposition uh, this. And and so I'm coming at this by saying, look, there's nothing special. I mean, yes, of course, humans are special and we can argue about, you know, what makes humans special and et cetera. But I'm interested in this idea that people want to pick this moment in time, and it doesn't even matter when that moment is. You can talk about, you know, oh, well, when the genus homo, when we decided on the genus homo, uh, which, you know, again, is an arbitrary point, you can say, oh, it's when, you know, something was distinguishable as, you know, being ape-like. You can talk about when the hominins erupt. But to me, all of those points, it's a problem because why would you pick that point? And, and you said it exactly right, Greg. Okay, you know, we descended from, you know, a unicellular aquatic, presumably life form. Um, well, why isn't that? Why isn't that the perfect point in our evolution? Because evolution is a continuous process. And I feel like everybody can say that and you can mouth that as a phrase like, oh, yes, evolution is continuous. No one, but it's really hard to internalize because there is no point at which you can say, aha, this is when people got this characteristic and that characteristic. So as someone who works on other kinds of animals besides primates, I'm fascinated with the way people try to pick at all these traits that are supposed to be human, like language or tool use or whatever, and say, oh, but isn't that really bizarre and mind blowing that ants also can use tools or that something that we're going to call language occurs in dolphins or, you know, whatever. And it's so weird because they're not, you know, like that, we don't share a common ancestor that recently with those animals. And it's like, why is that weird? There's lots, you know, evolution is continuous and some traits evolve as convergent. Some traits evolve, you know, because they're conserved. Your point? Like, I, I mean, I, I, I'm just not, I find it really perplexing that people want to pick this, this moment. Because again, you know, okay, so we were all, like, people will do this, you know, even, I mean, let's not talk about free will or consciousness or whatever, but, um, you know, people talk about, you know, oh, you know, animals being conscious. Well, like, so which animals are conscious and which ones aren't? And it's like, really, do you think like that there was a moment in time when suddenly like the fairy dust drifted down and it's like, boom, you're conscious. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I agree completely. And uh, uh, put a, 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 an edge on part of that, thinking about about language. My view, and you can maybe maybe have a different view, but my view is that whatever, whatever human language is, and I think it's okay to say that human language is pretty much distinctly appears in humans in the wild. We have sure. it, other animals don't. They have other communication sure. things. But if you take some chimps and, and, and raise them in a linguistic environment, especially apparently bonobos are better at this than regular chimps. Um, they get pretty linguistic. 
not my area, but I, my understanding is that, you know, part of the problem is physical. Part of the problem is, yeah. you know, with other stuff, but right. still, I mean, okay. If they're not talking. So why is it, why is it significant if bonobos aren't, you know, talking about Kant out there in, you know, right. the jungle? I mean, I like, okay, right. Right. Well, what I'm saying too, is like, is like thinking of Kanzi specifically. Um, Kanzi relates to humans in a way that's much more linguistic looking subjectively than other chimps do and certainly the wild chimps do and so this upsets people because the language barrier is no longer a strictly human thing because a, a language like thing appears in another animal but it appears in our nearest ancestor that should be very surprising if if feature behavioral features that emerge in life do not bleed over into near, relatively similar organisms and we're talking about brain organisms with brains and behavior that evolves that develops in, a, as a, in an individual's lifetime uh it'd be like saying i'm surprised that the spanish person speaks english who's raised in new york speaks english you shouldn't be surprised yeah okay yeah 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 and, yeah um, fair, fair enough because I, I mean i do feel like people are often surprised by things being complicated when you know as you started out saying yeah things are complicated um and i i often feel like like you, I, I, I've heard other people say, you know, oh, well, it's great to hear someone talking about how complicated it's like, who doesn't talk about how complicated things are. I had a really long interview um, with someone um, it's for a radio show in Canada. And I can't remember the interviewer's name. She was really good. Um, and we had a really long conversation about something and we finally finished. And I don't even remember the topic. And she said, okay, so, so really what you're saying, you know, as an expert in this is that it's, it's just really complicated. And then we both started laughing because it's like newsflash, science is complicated. But it was like, it really took like 20 minutes, you know, and we finally got to this and, and it was like, oh, this is really complicated. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I applaud anyone coming to that realization who can, that yeah. stuff is really complicated. And that's why it's not easy. You know, that's why it's a hard thing to be a scientist communicating to the public because, you know, everybody well including other scientists and not just communicating the public that's why it's hard being a person communicating um is that people want stuff to be simpler than it is right and even within science I, i'm going to skip right to something i had in my list of things to talk about near the end right away because we actually are just touching on the subject now um sure. the um, even among scientists sometimes oversimplification happens and sometimes simplification is important and good like maybe our model of the atom might be oversimplified but it's served well in chemistry okay so the and you talk about the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness in your book and the idea there is that a trait that we see that we believe to be adaptive or an ad or believe it to be an adaptation let's say um did have a time and space in which the selective forces that shaped it existed okay now once you get to the time and space something existing you have you're now faced with a problem of maybe things had changed over that time and maybe it wasn't true everywhere so there's going to be complexity but we'll simplify a little bit and say that you know um the the, con the context in which it was a good idea to have a longer proboscis as some kind of beetle this is when and where and this is why there's and this explains why it doesn't have a short proboscis if you want to be a neutral theorist or why it has a long one if you want to be an adaptationist and so that's fine so in human evolution I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you two little stories. So one is I remember as a graduate student being invited to a talk. It was in room 14A at the Peabody Museum. And in that talk, there was a guy I'd never heard of before named John Tooby. And uh, he was giving a talk and Leda Cosmides was there. 
And I could tell by the end of the talk later was the brains behind the operation. But anyway, John had this big blackboard and he wrote in the upper right-hand corner, um, human behavior that we observe. In the lower left-hand corner, he wrote DNA. And then he had this big giant blank, blank blackboard and he said, evolutionary psychology is this subject in which we try to fill in this blackboard. And I thought that was really good. That's a good way of putting it. But then they kind of went off the rails over the next couple of years. I think evolutionary psychology oversimplified things. And the EEA is one of them. And as a paleoanthropologist, I saw the conception of the EEA as the Serengeti with Bushmen on it. The first problem I had was Bushmen do not live in the Serengeti at all. They live in a different environment than that. And also hunter-gatherers live in all kinds of environments anyway. And over time, these things changed. So the very earliest phase of human evolution, there was no there was no Serengeti anyway. I mean, so it is way more complicated than that. So I wrote a paper and I delivered a paper at, a, at an evolutionary anthropology conference. And then I did it again and I did it again. I never published it, but I gave papers at their conferences every year for about five years saying the EA is, is a bogus concept. So during that period, I remember asking Irv DeVore, um, I had heard Balbi was the origin of the EEA concept. And you mentioned this in your book. So I asked Irv, where is that reference? Where's the EEA come from? And he said, well, it's Balbi, and it's volume one of, of his two volume set on childhood development. So I went and I was on a shelf. So I pulled it off and it was right there at chapter two, I think it was. The chapter name was called The Environment of Evolutionary Adaptiveness. And there was a footnote on the chapter title. And at the bottom of the chapter page, the open page, there was a footnote down there and it said, this concept was named as such and came to me in a conference at the Werner Gren Foundation presented by, in a paper presented by Herb DeBoer and Richard Lee. So I had asked Herb what's the origin of this of this concept and he told point to Bell, but he had forgotten that he had thought of it himself. So <laughs> that's a great story. Yeah. So the, the point being that about this whole picture is for people who are listening, the EA is this concept the the serum if you were to go around africa relatively relatively less wet africa like out of the rainforest and look for primates the place you will find the absolutely fewest primates is on the serengeti in the part of the serengeti where the lions live and i've been all around the serengeti and i've been all around africa and where the lions live in the serengeti there are no primates because well, if there were the lions, we just eat them as well as the leopards. It's a predator-rich environment and primates avoid that. You're going to find the primates in the woodlands that are that are more wooded. Then there's places like that. There's plenty of primates in the Serengeti. They're in the wooded parts. So the whole concept of this big, in in the uh, uh, the famous book on the EEA that came out, I'm blanking on the, on the name of the book now, Orions wrote an article about how our aesthetic is Serengeti aesthetic. We like the big savanna with the trees in it. That's the Serengeti that if you were an early hominin, you could not have lived in. And there's no archaeological evidence that you would have or that you did. So that's just an example of oversimplification, just killing the theory. But let's get back to this for a second. What do you think about our ancestors as informative models these days? What do you think now? I mean, do you think that we're looking at a past where there's this existence of side-by-side -side Neanderthals and modern humans? Um, what do you think about the, the Denisovians? Or do you have thoughts about 
is a lot of the stuff that does shape us today relatively recent in time or is it relatively old in time? Like, what do you think about that? I guess I'm going to start by saying the same thing I said before, which is remember evolution is continuous. I mean, which right. I know you know, but I think that that's the sort of thing that, like I said, it's hard to internalize and it means that people start thinking like, okay, but where are we going to get the model from, you know, that, you know, don't we have to pick something? And right. it seems to me you pick some different things if you want to learn about different characteristics. And so sure, Neanderthals might be awesome for trying to understand, I don't know, the origins of certain forms of soci sociality, you know, as people are starting to learn more and more about, you know, Neanderthal culture. Um, so that might be an interesting place to look. But, you know, for other things, they've been around for a lot longer. And the other point is that, again, every at every single stage, you've got these trade-offs and things that are not working out. And, you know, I, an example I use um, uh, that I use in talks that, that uh, he hadn't written, um, that, uh, Dan Lieberman, who at, at mm -hmm. Harvard, who you probably know, um, had written his book, had not written his book about the story of the human body. Um, so he's an evolutionary anthropologist and he's very interested in this idea about trade-offs. He actually also, it's funny you said what you did at the beginning, because um, he also came up to me at a conference and said, I'm really glad you wrote that book so I didn't have to, right. which I really wasn't sure how to take, <laughs> frankly. Um, but anyway. Um, well, I meant it as a good thing. Dan, I don't okay, know. Okay, <laughs> well, well, you can say so. Um, but anyway, the, the point being that, you know, it's not like anyone was ever in this state of harmony. And I think that this right. idea about, oh, individuals living in harmony. And so we can look to that like, oh, that was a time when we had this or this was a time when we had that. It's just a fallacy. And so one of the examples that I now use in my talks that's from Lieberman's stuff is um, uh, the construction of the throat and the trachea and choking on your food, which humans are much more susceptible to than chimpanzees. And he's got this gorgeous diagram in the book of you know, sort of a cross section of what, you know, a human, uh, uh, what a modern human, um, an early human, and I can't remember what he used, um, and a chimpanzee look like. And chimpanzees don't um, have nearly the risk of choking on their food that um, humans do because their trachea is far more separate from their vocal apparatus, right? And so, um, or for, sorry, from their um, digestive apparatus. Whereas in humans, it's very close and it has to do with the position of the tongue. And, you know, it's been a long time since I looked at the diagram, so I can't, mm -hmm. you know, give you the details. Yeah, but the descending anyway. larynx and pharynx. Yeah, yeah, right. Anyway, the point being that, um, you know, humans, including early humans, have a really different arrangement and it makes you vulnerable to things going down the wrong pipe. And I would all, I always start with talks saying like, OK, raise your hand in the audience if you've ever had the experience of having, you know, a piece of food or liquid or with something sort of go down the wrong pipe. Um, and, you know, you kind of have to cough, you know, thing up and, you know, I, and if everybody doesn't raise their hand, I said, oh, come on, like everybody has had that experience. So those of you who are not raising your hand think that there's going to be something, something I promise I won't call on you. Right. Um, but anyway, um, so everybody's had that experience. And so why do you think that is? And it turns out that, and again, I'm going to muff this, this um, statistic, but it turns out that choking on your food is actually a fairly serious cause of accidental death. Like yeah. people choke on their food and die. Like it's not a little thing. Um, and so why would evolution have produced this when our closest ancestors don't have it? And the obvious, um, you know, thing that at most anthropologists I think would agree on is that it's selection for speech. Right. That, you know, having your tongue and the various other muscles and, you know, whatnot bones in your throat able to allow you to talk 
gave a sufficient advantage that it's kind of worth it if you cho choke sometimes because talking is really, really, really important. So what does that tell you? Is Did we evolve speech as a good thing? Of course. Does speech have bad things about it? Of course. Everything is like that. There is nothing that is not like that. And I think it's really hard when you look at human evolution not to see it as this, oh, but we just kept getting better and better in every way. We didn't. We're just the way we are. You know, yeah. and you end up saying these kind of silly platitudes like, oh, you know, things are what they are. And I I, I really I really hate it when, you know, people say, oh, it is what it is, because I've always right. found that like a really inane thing to say. But at some level, you know, well, here we are. We just evolved the way we did. And sure, it could have been better. But, you know, there you go. See, there is. Yeah. yeah. Go, go ahead. Mike. Oh, yes. We have to remember that evolution doesn't seek the prime prime. I guess the best solution, it, it sees someone that doesn't interfere with reproductive success. So if something comes along and is expressed and it may be negative, but it comes in after we've had babies ourselves and passed along the solution, it may continue to go on um, even though it's maladaptive or growing old. So it's kind of interesting that you brought up that choking thing because of my recent motorcycle accident. I broke some ribs. And while I was in the hospital, I had asked for some um, sunflower seeds to go along in my salad. And um, one tiny seed went down the wrong pipe. And it took about 15 to 20 minutes of um, coughing with broken ribs to get it out. And they, That's a bad time to have the coughing. Yeah, dental <laughs> sacrifice to take care of it so um Interesting. a lot one of, the, one of the questions that i had and one of the and, and one of the things that i wanted to bring up specifically about paleo fantasy and, and i just want to add that i know that your publisher had wondered why we wanted to ask about this when you've got a new book out more recently but so i'll, I'll just kind of preface this question by saying that when a book is good it's good for a long time that's why it's out on paper you know you can set it in the bookshelf and pull it out like 10 years down the road and reread it and so I think this is one of those books that can be reread and new things got out of it. But one of the things that I kind of took from it was that people have this misconception that humans evolve at a specific rate. And so our ability to digest uh, certain types of things was kind of frozen before the agricultural revolution 11, 12,000 years ago or whenever it was. But you bring along some great Great points about, um, so anyway, so you bring along some good points about our bodies are not alone as far as evolution and the ability, it's not just our bodies that are evolving to digest, but there's another facet to our ability to digest foods that also come into play when it comes to evolving diets. And, and, and what was it that you had, that you had explained to people in, in the book? Or does that go as far as like microbiomes and so forth? Well, you know, I'm sorry to keep repeating this, but, you know, it's just this idea about evolution being continuous that, you know, there's no more reason to pick the time period before agriculture developed as the time when we were perfectly in harmony with our environment than it would be to have picked an era, you know, way before that, um, when people were scavengers, uh, or at least some of the evidence suggests that people may have been scavengers. I mean, it's not entirely clear. And so, 
you know, like, why wasn't everybody upset? Because, you know, Oog the caveman was, he was saying, look, I'm going to make a spear. Look, spear, I'm going to kill something. And everybody else was like, no, we've only, we, we can't possibly digest something that was recently dead. We have to wait for it to have been dead for a long time and, and, you know, eat it then. And so, you know, Nobody wants to think about that because that seems kind of gross. You know, like we evolved to be scavengers. There are not a lot of diet books suggesting eating rotten meat. Apparently we did it for a while. That's a good point. I, I personally have never accepted scavenging as a major role in human evolution. This is a side okay. trip. Yeah. And and I did a lot of work on that and 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 even tried to do it and stuff. And I, I just don't think it's every every major predator scavenges. Yeah, and everything I mean, we call scavenger enough, prey. Yeah. So it's like, you know, yeah. and, and I mean, given. I mean, fair, fair enough. But but you take the point, you know, that, yeah. that like, again, if right. whatever it was that we did before hunting, you know, like there right. was something there, too. So, yeah. And and by the way, this is a side thing on the point you made about the um, choking. We we do. We can die from choking. And more often than that, we just get scared by choking. So we know about it. And I believe this is part of the reason why people are so uptight about their dogs and cats choking because, really? huh. well, you know, if, if I, it, how often I, we don't all have that off every now and then I've been in a situation. The first time I noticed it and thought about it, I was actually in the Aturi forest with in, in our research site there. And we had a cat and we didn't feed the cat much because the cat had his own way of getting food. And um, I tossed a cat. We had chicken. I tossed a cat a chicken leg. And a person, an American who just gotten there, who hasn't been there very long, just reached, dove on the chicken leg and separated the cat and the chicken leg and was like, you're going to kill it. It will choke to death. I'm thinking, well, I've been here for two years. I feed the cat a chicken leg every now and then, you know, just the bone. Um, carnivores. And believe me, this was a wild, this was a, a domestic cat species wise, but it was not a Lala Shishi cat. It was like not a de-evolved Persian or something. It was a regular cat. These kings in the wild eat bones, eat animals with bones. They don't choke to death. They don't have the human problem. They are, they actually can ingest and digest bones to some degree. Cats are not as good as some other things. It just isn't a thing. So my question to people who worry about that is, name the cat that you know that died choking on the bone. And I want the name of the vet also, because I want to see the paperwork. <laughs> and everybody knows a cousin who knew somebody, but no one yeah, knows the yeah. person who did it. <laughs> Um, it just isn't something that Mike, did I cut you off? Did you have another part of your question? Um, I was, well, that does bring something else up, but yeah, I was going to ask you about the evolution of the um, gut biome and how that is complementary to our ability to modify um, our diet without waiting for our stomachs to evolve differently. Well, see, I think the microbiome stuff has become, I think it's it's a little bit less now. I don't know what people are, are or what the, the new thing is, but um, I one of my closest colleagues and friends at the uh, University of Minnesota is a microbial ecologist, microbial evolution person. And he is constantly just rolling his eyes at the extent to which people want to attribute so much stuff to our microbiome, because not because it isn't important, but because the field is so much in its infancy of trying to understand, you know, because I've, for a while there, it does seem, and it does seem like this has died down, but for a while there, every other day, there was a, you know, your microbiome makes you fat. Your microbiome determines whether or not you're going to get depressed. Your microbiome determines this or that. You can change your microbiome with your shampoo. You can, you know, like not change, you know, and you shouldn't change your microbiome because then you shouldn't shampoo. And, you know, like all went on and on. And um, I think a bigger dose of 
humility, trying to interpret what our microbiome is doing for us is kind of in order here. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't generally think of myself as being a very conservative or cautious person, but that's one area where I feel like a lot of the speculation has really outstripped um, what we actually know. Um, I mean, it's really clear that messing up your microbiome couldn't have dire effects. And and all previous book with life, I became very interested in the idea that we've co-evolved with our parasites and pathogens sure. and with things that are kind of neither parasites nor pathogens. So, so there's that too. So, so it's not like I'm not, saying they don't they it's not like i'm saying they don't have um an influence it's just really 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 hard to make specific predictions about like oh early human you know there are there's tons of correlative studies of modern day foraging societies and their microbiome compared to modern day you know society industrialized societies and their microbiome and, you know, like, yeah, clearly they're different. Boy, they are different in ways that often can kind of, you can kind of rationalize and that you can make sense. Going further than that and saying that we would be healthier if we just had species X, Y, and Z in our microbiome is, I don't know, I think there's some problems. Yeah, it's actually gotten to the point, I agree with you. Um, if you go look up on the internet, how many cells are in a human body? Oh, two, yeah. Two, two, two things that happened. First, we've increased the number of cells because there was a, there was an estimate that was around forever that apparently was just wrong. And the actual yeah. number is bigger. Um, but then people started adding the microbiome in there. <laughs> and I think it's nice to know the number of cells in a microbiome. That's an interesting big number. So it's nice, but it's not the same as the number in the, in the body. And, well, and, and then there was that thing of like, what is it? Ten? They they had that thing that 10 times more cell, like, you know, you're not really human because 10 times more cells are from your microbiome or right. whatever. And then that right. turns out not to be really true either. I mean, again, right. I, this goes back to the simplifying thing. You know, people just sort of like that. It's sort of like I actually discovered, and, and this was my bad too, because I had repeated this because I had read it and had not been critical about it, that um, one out of every three bites of uh, food um, come, you know, requires a pollinator. Well, that turns out not to be true either. And I had that in my book on insects. So, you know, may I call that, right. but okay. um you yeah. know, you read that a lot of places too. So it, it just goes to yeah. show you that a lot of these little factoids turn well, out to be all that well supported. Yeah, and what sticks- You I also mean, don't need eight um, glasses of water a day. Like we could go right. on, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, if you, yeah, you might need that. Yeah, right, exactly. And we only use um, 10% of our brain. And right, left, yeah, yeah, there's a ton of those. There's the, a ton the, of those. Yeah. <laughs> the left, right brain thing is, <clears throat> there is lateralization, but it's not what people say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also anyway, eat, right, yeah. eat, eat right for your gene, for your um, blood type. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, apparently that got a little bit, the 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 diet and blood type thing had a little bit of a resurgence for a while there, because for yeah. a, a little while I had people asking me about it again, and they were modifying a little bit so that it wasn't just the ABO, but, you know, that right. you could use some other blood grouping and, and do this, and it was just like, dude. Um, yeah, there was yeah. some research that actually, I mean, there, there, if you, if you add enough variables, you can get a correlation. So if I was a cannibal, I wouldn't want to eat something from somebody since I'm an O negative, that might've been like an AB positive. I wouldn't want to eat somebody that um, had that blood type. Is that what it but was? I, I never heard anyone I, draw it out to that as you cut somewhat logical extension. I never I did. think you should, you should, you should not eat that person. I agree. You should not eat that person, but if you do, it's okay. If you cook them thoroughly. Okay. That's true too. Yes. And that, by the way, points back, Marlene, to something you keep saying, and that is 
because we cook our food, um, we already had a, a we already probably had a pretty diverse diet. Our our great aunt, whatever time you want to go back to the ape human common ancestor, the chimp human common ancestor, whatever. Um, apes kind of are diverse and compared to a lot of organisms compared to a lot of animals primates are pretty diverse in their diet even the ones that are specialized and uh, apes are not that specialized and modern humans are extremely diverse in their diet and as far as we know from the archaeology we have been diverse as far back as the archaeology tells us we've been diverse as a species even if some local people may not have a highly diverse diets and it's impossible to imagine people living and surviving on some of the diets that we know we have. Uh, it's just impossible to imagine, but they do, they have. And so, and but but cooking, we talk about evolution being continuous. There might be moments in which there are more abrupt changes, although I don't want to overstate that abrupt changes too much because when cooking was, was emerged, it doesn't mean everyone had cooking and everyone was doing cooking of everything the same way. But once cooking got established, it even more increased our diversity of our diet. At the same time, making it less diverse, because by cooking everything, you make it more similar in some ways by removing toxins, but it allows you to eat more things. So again, a lot more diversity. Now, can we quickly touch on another area? Because to me, whenever I talk to human about human evolution, like I get interviewed, just like you're getting interviewed, um, one of the most important points that I like to make is the importance of, in human development. And you talk about this in your book of childhood. To me, childhood is a is a modern human feature that provides modern humans with a lot of our modern human things that we have behaviorally. By modern human, I mean physiologically modern human of the last X thousands of years, whatever you want. Um, and it's it's something that when we compare chimps and humans, there's this to simplify, oversimplify. There's this set of years during which some things happen inserted in the human experience that is not quite there in the chimpanzee experience. And those things don't happen with chimpanzees. And one of the most important things being, that's when we get our language. And you talk about people learning to be a hunter-gatherer and childhood and training and adults versus children. I think having lived with hunter-gatherers and actually done experiments to test those ideas, I find that really interesting. Wanna talk about that a little bit? Uh, well, it sounds like you should talk about that a little bit. Tell me, tell me more about people learning to be hunter-gatherers. Well, well, okay, I'll give you an experiment that we did. Example of an experiment we did. We got a, first of all, as archaeologists, you know that we do things like we make stone tools and then we like kill something or get something someone killed, like a goat, and then get undergraduates to cut it up and, and look at the bones and the stones. Yeah, yes, at, at, at the University of Minnesota, my friends in the anthropology department have invited me. Um, they have an annual picnic where they do some kind of... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm the person that brought that tradition to the University of Minnesota. No, I I've am. never gone. Well, and um, it started in in Berkeley. Well, no, it started in, it started in Africa somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where. Rhodesia, someplace colonial. And it was Desmond Clark. And it was, it was a, a tradition in doing an archaeological excavation to like get a goat, kill it, eat it, have a feast, but you kill it ritually. And Desmond had the idea, let's save the bones, let's save the stones. He went to Berkeley. Glenn Isaac went to Berkeley. Glenn Isaac became my advisor in archaeology later before he died. And so they did it there. Then they brought it to Harvard. And I had just started graduate school there. The first goat, his name was Skippy. My job was to get the bones cleaned up. 
And then every year after that, we did it. We had to call it to goat roast, but we switched to sheep pretty quick because sheep tastes better. Um, although I like personally I like goat a lot. And we had it every year and we'd have the undergraduates do the experiments. And, so, and then when we moved to Minnesota, I brought that here. My then wife and I brought it here and we did it. Only we switched to add deer. So we switched completely to deer when we had a deer supply. We don't have deer supply. We, we do it with sheep. Um, one year back at Harvard, it was, I think, someone offered us an elephant. Someone in New Hampshire had an elephant that they had. A, they were required by law to kill because it had done something bad. So they said, do you want this elephant? We elected not to use the elephant. <laughs> we weren't sure. He said, it you have to kill it. Story. Yeah, but we had to kill it. Oh, right. Yes, that would be. Yeah, that would be hard. It would be hard. We probably could have done it. I mean, anyway, we didn't want to do it. That's the problem. We could have done it. We didn't want to do it. Anyway, so you do those experiments and you get a lot of information about this. Um, and where were we going with this originally before we were going to the University of Minnesota? We talk, oh, yes. Yeah, you were so, talking about so learning how to experiment. be a gatherer. So I knew what I could do with a stone tool. And I and I'd done a lot. I had butchered and cut up many, many animals with a stone tool. And I knew what the I knew people like John Shea and others who were experts on this thing that I went to, that also went to graduate school with his SUNY, SUNY uh, Stony Brook. I, I I worked with him. He was one of the people with me cutting up the animals. Okay, so I knew what people who were experimenting with this could do. So we we had John Shea make some. He made five flakes, big flakes that could be used as knives, out of of nice raw material. We brought them to the Atari Forest, waited till there was an available uh, blue diker that they had hunted. And we said, instead of you cutting this up like you normally would, and we taking pictures and not making notes like we always do, because we had done that with every mammal they'd killed for a long time, use these stone tools. So they looked at the stone tools and they passed them around and they had a historical laugh about it. They thought this was the funniest thing in the whole world. And then they proceeded to cut up the animal with the stone tools. And they, the amount of time it took them to cut the animals with a stone tool versus with their metal tools, the difference in time, zero. Most people would think the stone tools are replaced by the metal tools, which are better. They did it. There was it was actually slightly less time, but I'm going to say zero statistically. They had no difficulty. They loved it. They wanted to keep the stone tools. Now the difference in the stone and metal versus then is that uh, the the stone in resharpening will wear down faster. So your stone tool you resharpen it four or five times is done. Metal you can resharpen a hundred times. That's the difference. It's not how well it works. They both huh. worked really, really well. But the most important thing was not their knowledge of using this tool. Their important thing was the knowledge of the whole process of cutting the animal up. I could have given them a bazooka and they would have been able to do it. Okay, I think. So not, maybe not a bazooka. But they're, they're overall, now you talk in your book about how it's not stuff you learn as a child. You can learn stuff as an adult. And I believe that that's true because the difference between, uh, I work mostly with the men because men work with men and women work with women in a hunter-gatherer society for various reasons, typically. So um, if a man goes hunting and he's a pygmy, he will kill something if he wants to. The difference between a hunter that comes back with an animal every day and a hunter that doesn't is a personal choice. I mean, if there's no animals, they'll have an unsuccessful time. But in a normal condition with certain animals out there, he'll shift his method of hunting, he'll get something almost every single day. A Minnesotan who goes up north or over to Wisconsin to go hunting for deer, they may not get anything. They've got a gun. Um, if you go hunting every year for two or three days, starting at the age of 18, 
How many times have you gone hunting by the time you're 40? Dozens. If you're a pygmy, by the time you're age, you're age 40, you have gone hunting every day since you were 12 or 13 years old. That's tens of thousands. And it doesn't matter if you start when you're 20 or 21, pretty soon you're gonna have hundreds and hundreds of cases and you're getting advice from experts if they give you advice. It's the same idea of what do hunter-gatherers talk about when they return from their day and they sit around the campfire. You talk about this too. Are they talking about where they saw the antelope or techniques for hunting? No, they're gossiping. Maybe somebody had a dream. They talk about that. They have, in a, among the pygmies, they have dancing and singing and it's ritualized. A lot of it is very important. They'll talk about that. Who's a good dancer? They'll talk about people who aren't there that they miss or just want to talk about behind their back. <laughs> There's no difference between what hunter-gatherers talk about at the end of the day than what anybody else in any other society talks about at the end of the day. And it isn't extra hunter-gatherer stuff. And so our whole armchair conception of how hunter-gatherers perceive to be hunter-gatherers from birth is it's a paleo fantasy. It's made up. And if it's any of us right, it's by chance, really. You know, which is funny because it's sort of like you're coming around the other way to saying that we're a lot like people that live under different circumstances, which by implication is that we're a lot like people who were our ancestors many, you know, thousands and thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago. But you're saying it in a completely opposite way to the way that, you know, someone might say, oh, no, we have to live like, you know, cavemen did. Right. So it's, it's it's kind of an interesting, you know, coming around and meeting yourself going back. Yeah. And it, despite the shock, the potential shock of a new experience, which I admit can be very, very significant. You know, the question is how you know, everybody who worked with the pygmies in our project started everybody who worked in that field almost everybody started with the idea of working with the FA and then discovered that it was basically like going camping and never coming back. It's like they, you sleep in the mud. I mean, you're getting it rained on their little dome huts. They're not waterproof. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just not. And if, and if any of that bothers you, you're going to give up really soon. But if, if it bothers you when you stay there for a month and you get used to it and you're just living like that, not a big deal. Um, if you, uh, the caveman that's frozen in the ice and comes back to life, from the ice age, they'll adjust really fast. <laughs> Initially, it's going to be a freak app, right? Cell phones and everything else. But how long is it going to take that ice ice man from the ice man movie to actually adjust? You know, I mean, so, they have to learn some stuff. But Greg, you you uh, you brought up the title uh, Paleo Fantasy, and Marlene, um, in your introductory. Uh, comment, which um, I want to suggest that when you do the revised, revised edition of this book, you change from iPod to iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> you see, because nobody's going to know what you're talking about. But what you also mentioned the root of the portmanteau paleo and paleo fantasy, and it's, it's not something that you coined, but there was another source for that term. Where where did you find that, or where did that come from? Oh, it was um, an article. Um... Uh, Leslie Aiello, who uh, was at that time president of the Winter Grand Foundation, very prominent anthropologist, um, was talking about human evolution with uh, in a, at a small conference, and it was reported on in an article in Science, and she was talking about people's tendency to uh, speculate about human cognition and the ev evolution of human cognition based on very limited sort of fossil 
skull samples and, you know, the idea of, you know, trying to extrapolate from brain, you know, from information about um, skulls and brains about what humans were like. Um, and she, you know, said that made this great statement, you know, of, of like, well, is this really, you know, something that we, is there evidence for this or is this just a paleo fantasy? And I thought, yes, this is perfect. And so I emailed her and I said, would you mind? Um, I will credit you. Um, and so she said, she said, no, it was fine to use it, um, which I've always been grateful for, um, which actually is, is a, a fun part of um, writing these books, incidentally. And I always feel like I should point that out because sometimes people, you know, think of it as, as some, you know, either competitive or that it's, you know, in isolation or whatever, is that one of the, the great joys of writing a book for a more general audience where you are, you know, ranging into things that are not your very, you know, narrow area of expertise is that I can contact like pretty much anybody in the world who's a scientist and I'll say, you know, oh, you know, I read this paper and I was interested in thing X or do you have any more information about thing Y or can you even tell me a story about when you discovered, you know, thing Z? And people are like so kind. Um, I've almost never had someone, you know, not want to talk to me or not, you know, people are amazing. And so I, you know, maybe it's surprising, but it's really restored my faith in, you know, my colleagues and people wanting to just share their knowledge. I, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, so right from the get go of picking the title, um, you know, I felt like, I was like, oh, good. Someone, you know, doesn't mind. And and certainly, you know, my background is not in anthropology per se. And I got a lot of help from a lot of colleagues and a lot of people that I knew um, who who were extremely kind and extremely, you know, welcoming to do all this. Actually, Greg, you're a divorce student and um, then I spent time here. You must know my uh, colleague, Mike Wilson. Yeah, um, who, Mike was uh, my student. Mike was my student at Harvard. I yeah. mean, sort of. Like, I, yeah, when he came in, I was in charge of a part of the part of the graduate program and he had to take my seminar and now he's at the university of minnesota yeah indeed great guy yes. yeah in our in our department in fact yeah he's yeah. He's, actually, he's actually left the anthropology department and he's full-time in ecology and evolution which is really fun oh i didn't realize that okay yeah. good cool anyway so, um so it kind of sounds like from what you just said that you know when one of the things that carl sagan ran into when he first started going in popular in the 60s with communicating uh physics he was kind of shunned by his fellow physicists who said that he was doing the wrong thing by going on TV and so forth. It seems like that's changed quite a bit in the last 20 to 30 years, hasn't it? Well, that's an interesting thing to think about. I think it's changed in a sense because people are really interested in scientists doing, you know, outreach, doing what the National Science Foundation refers to as broader impacts, which is trying to see how your work influences uh, people outside your field and and so forth. Um, and so in that sense, it's been uh, useful. I still think that as a scientist doing it, as opposed to being like a social scientist or um, certainly someone in the humanities or like history or something like that, I still think there there is a little bit of people looking at and I, I do sometimes get people who, um, because I, you know, I feel like what I do is scholarly. I mean, I feel like writing those books is a scholarly endeavor. You know, it involves, you know, looking up information. I mean, I'm not in the lab doing experiments, but I'm reporting on experiments I've done in the lab. So that, you know, should count for something. But anyway, um, and so you still kind of get this, oh, but you're just kind of taking what everybody else did and dumbing it down for the masses. And I, I think there's kind of a little more to it than that. Um, 
but yeah, I, I do think that some of the some of the stigma is, is is not there. I also think that it's really different being a practicing scientist and writing for the public than it is being like a journalist and writing for the public. And I and I know lots of science journalists who are amazing and do fantastic. I'm not trying to say that that's not a, a, a worthwhile thing to do. It just gives you a really different perspective. Um, I think I'm more opinionated <laughs> because, you know, if you're a journalist doing this, you don't, you're not opinionated. You're, 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 you're being a journalist, you're reporting on stuff. You're, you're saying, well, here's what people think. And then on the one hand and on the other hand, and I think, you know, it, I mean, I've gotten to a point in my career, I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> yeah, that's really all very insightful. I, I think, first of all, I do agree. I think that the stigma is still really much there in within a profession. If you're a, if you're an expert on on pine trees and you go out and start talking to the public about pine trees your pine tree fellow experts are like why are you doing that you should be working on your peer-reviewed research but if you're anybody talking to the public about science that's but really the point really i think you're right all due respect to my many colleagues and friends who are science writers with a very few exceptions i'll put a scientist writing public stuff against a science writer and i'll take the scientists every time and I, I we can look book after book your books other books there's a few exceptions that are really major but you're right the scientist has the opinions that's interesting the scientist has has been if you're a scientist especially also if you're teaching you spend a lot of time thinking about how to explain stuff that's really hard to explain and and well so, so do the, you know to their credit so do the journalists i mean i really admire people who can who can do all that like i said i mean i'm really not trying to suggest that one way is right. different and, and actually if you don't have as many opinions then i think the 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 flip side of that argument and i've talked about this as you know with mm. friends that are science writers that that the flip side is that they get to have a fuller picture and they can present a you know yeah i mean everybody's biased but they can present a picture that's that's not biased in the way that that mine right. would be yeah, and when you look at books, just books, the better science write the, the the books written by science writers tend to be. Just forget about books for a minute and compare books written by people like you who are scientists versus science writer articles, and that's where you see the really big the big contrast where the the um, the journalistic approach is being used in the articles and the like articles in, you know the washington post or something very few cases are really rise to the same level as a scientist does in what they're doing and it's, it can be really that's where the journalists are will the the average mediocre journalist will be very happy to repeat the falsehoods the scientist looks up the falsehoods and finds out that they're falsehoods it doesn't repeat them way more often than not in my experience you know, i don't know i mean also you know there's certainly scientists who are the source of the falsehoods so you right. know you don't want to sure. you want to yeah. make sure that you know, that's, that's not, uh, yeah. whatever, but yeah, I mean, I, I, and obviously this is not limited to science. I think there is a little bit of a, a an issue now in reporting where it's this whole both sides ism, right. you know, and, right. and, you know, you really don't want to say, well, on the one hand evolution, on the other hand, some people still think, you know, that the world was created in seven days. Yeah. I don't know, what are we going to do? You know? Right. So, so I, you know, there is a limit to where you want to do the, yeah. The, the impartial reporting but right. anyway no it's just it's just something i'm interested in i've just recently joined a writing group um here and uh one of the people in it is a novelist and i'm just in awe because like i could never i you know like the idea of coming up with a plot and characters like mm -hmm. oh my god 
And yeah. of course, in her view, like, well, but everybody comes up with a plot and characters. It's just yours are more based in reality than mine are, you know. Right. Or, it's or all stories. Things. It's all stories. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I, I'm still not sure whether I really believe that or not. Um, so it is it is interesting. I mean, I am very interested in writing as a craft. And I'm very interested yeah. in, you know, how people learn how to do it. I And I teach science writing um, at the university for graduate students um, mm -hmm. who, who are writing papers, not, you know, right. not for people who want to write for the public necessarily. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite interested in, in how that works. Um, uh, I have a question for you. Sure. That is not about paleo fantasy or about okay. writing. Okay. Um, one thing I've been doing lately, cause I, 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 what I'm doing, what I'm doing for money, cause I, what I am is I am a writer who writes stuff that no one reads. <laughs> and then, so in order to make money, we, we all, we, we could all say that Greg, we, we uh, I know, just, say that. I'm, I'm not alone in that profession. You're not alone. Of, there's a lot of us. But to make money, I tutor students. Oh, wow. Part, just part-time, a couple students yeah. at a time. And I tutor them, among other things, in their SAT prep. Oh, yeah. And there's an SAT essay that every student who does, does prep these days, there's, there's a book and you take the practice test. And every student has taken this practice test. And there's an, an essay in it that talks about um, the reason why there's so many more animal species than plant species. And the number is one and a half million to, and this, this is an older essay, to 400,000 or something like that. Um, and and the reason given has to do with um, how reproduction happens. You know, broadcast spawners versus, uh, so it's an argument that I don't think is a very, well, it's an argument that they make that internally is internally consistent and a pretty decent argument. I don't think it's right, but it's well made. But the data that is used is this fascinating table that shows different major categories of organisms, major categories of plants and major categories of animals. One of the major categories of animals is anthrop anthropods, arthrop arthropods. And the arthropods, if you took the arthropods out of the table, just removed them like they never existed, the number of species of plants and animals on this table is almost identical. Huh. So the arthropods are responsible for all of those extra species, why? <laughs> That's your area of expertise, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, not so much about uh, speciation, but um, but sure, yes, I do work on I do work on arthropods. Um, so, so a uh, part of why that's suspect is that you do know, like, that the way people assign species in plants is completely nuts, and yes. and like they're like completely different, and it's nuts. You're saying it's nuts? Yeah, they might say that you're nuts. Well, because but, it, because it's really hard because. Yeah. Um, speciation the speciation process is really different in plants than it is in animals in part because of you know um polyploidy i mean stuff that we're not right. probably going to go into now right um so delineating species particularly in non-vascular plants is super super hard yeah. um so i guess that's one of the reasons that that would be suspect also nematodes and people don't really know very much about um like speciation and and diversity in nematodes you know stuff where it's hard to morphologically differentiate them Right. Um, which includes nematodes, you know. There was yeah, a paper really a few hard. years ago, the number of leeches in North America went up by a factor of 10 because someone looked at their DNA and decided. Yeah, exactly. There's 10 times more. And you're right about plants. No, And that's what, yeah. But insects Anyway, are, the, the, the point being, yes, arthropods are really diverse and aren't arthropods wonderful? And and I, I see that we're probably running out of time. So I'm, ha I'm happy to just rhapsodize about arthropods for the last bit. Um, but you probably don't necessarily want to. Um, no, we want that. We want that. 
because arthropods are the best who doesn't love <laughs> arthropods well i guess I, I guess there are people who don't love arthropods but um well, no i mean i'm sure you've heard you know the usual drill part of the thing here is that i can give you the usual drill which has to do with they can live anywhere except in the deep ocean um they um their small size allows them to you know occupy lots of ecological niches let me point out that all of that stuff is post hoc, right? It's mm -hmm. not like you started out initially and said, okay, you know, which of these is going to be the most diverse, you know, and, and so I worry a little bit that, you know, people come up with this as a way of, of, of right. rationalizing what they've all already seen. Um, but yeah, arthropods, you know, yeah. and people don't appreciate arthropods because arthropods are super cool. Like well, they're part of our biome. Cool. They're like our gut biome, only bigger and they fly. They're exactly. part of us. So uh, I think it was Terry Deacon who pointed this out. Um, I think one final question, though. I want, I want to make a comment first. Okay. Evolution always makes sense as a linear process with, a, with an obvious future when you look at it, the parts that have already happened. You can't predict the future at all. But if you go into the past and look at the past and predict the part of the future that we know about, in other words, the less recent past, it tends to make sense to people. That's your post hoc arguments. That's why the post hoc yeah, arguments sort, are so sort good. of. And but you know what I think is changing our mind about that is an increasing understanding both about rapid evolution and about convergence. Yeah. Um. Yeah. For for my summer lab read, um, I had my students and my postdoc and I all read uh, Jonathan Losos's uh, Improbable Destinies. Do you, Do you know that book? I um, haven't read it, but heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fabulous, and um, he makes a really interesting case there about the whole idea of, you know, could we replay the tape of life and what would happen and so forth. And um, I think increasingly we're understanding how convergent evolution plays a really important role, which is one of the reasons why I love studying insects, because they do all this stuff that's like what people do, and they came at it through completely different evolutionary pathways. Mike, did you have a final question? It's actually suggested by Google's BARD, the oh. um, AI chat um, language feature. What surprised you in writing this book? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were gonna ask that question. Yeah, um, so so I, I, I do find it interesting when people, people wanna know that because I mean, can't you just write about things that you already like knew about? And um, so I, I what I loved about writing the book, let me put it a different way. What I loved about writing the book was that some of the chapters were things that I already knew stuff about. Um, and I was very, you know, I was kind of familiar with the literature and I knew a little bit about, um, uh, you know, uh, what was going on. And, and what I found is that the topics that I almost had the most fun with were the things that I knew almost nothing about beforehand. Um, so, for instance, the chapter on uh, the barefoot running and um, evolution and exercise, I didn't I had no idea. Um, and so I just started reading some stuff and was like, whoa, this is cool. Um, so, so I don't know about surprising me, but certainly I had more fun with that. And I had a hard time writing the chapter on sex and gender and family life, because I'm really interested in that and have read a ton and feel like it's kind of more fraught. That's so true. What you're speaking there is such truth. Th those, those valleys you got to fill in are the adventures you'd go on and that, um, the stuff you know about it's grueling sometimes. I, I even I find that when I'm teaching too that that so for instance if I when I was teaching animal behavior 
Um, if I or, or I taught a class in sort of vertebrate natural history for a while. And when I had to do the, the stuff on behavior and when I was talking about like sexual selection, which is my area, I was like, oh, my God, I can't do just one lecture on this. This is awful. And I had a horrible time. Right. Um, and right. I can give whereas I can do like a bang up lecture on uh, thermoregulation. And I'm sure it would horrify any expert in the field. But, man, it was interesting. And I just got it done. And there we were. I could do it in 50 minutes. Who cared? Yeah. <laughs> I, right. One of the problems with teaching when I was teaching at the University of Minnesota is it's such a big school that you have the risk of doing that summary bang up lecture. And then your student is taking a class from the person whose research you're cribbing. So Craig Packer, oh, yeah. I, talk, I talked about something I learned from something he wrote, I thought about the role of the mane and the male lion. And he had done more recent research, which made a lot of sense, it was much, much better, but I didn't know about it. And the student comes in and says, everything you say is a lie. It was actually my evaluation. <laughs> everything you say is a lie because I was in this other class and Professor Packer said this and this. It's like, so I actually had to give a little, I now then included in my lectures, you have to recognize the fact that in an introductory class, I am very much against glossing. I'm very much against making up species to have an example. I want to talk about real stuff, but even so you get some stuff wrong. Absolutely. Doesn't mean everything else is wrong. Let us know. Let me know anyway. Okay, well, thanks very much for this time. That's been really instructive yeah, and fun. helpful and fun. Well, that wraps up the show. I would like to thank you all for downloading and listening. If you go to the show notes at iconocast.com, there will be a link where you can purchase the book. And that's again at iconocast.com. If you select episodes, it'll be episode number 34. And I want to thank Marlene for being on the show. Definitely look forward to having you again in the future. And we're going to have some additional shows coming up here pretty soon. Greg and I talked about nuclear power and whether or not that's a green technology that we can count on. So look for that within a week or so. As always, if you download the show at a podcaster, uh, we do have a website that you can go and you can look at um, previous episodes. Thanks again for listening to Iconocast. 